Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a very special guest today, the man who wrote what I consider to be the best time travel novel ever written, The Man Who Folded Himself. A classic writer of science fiction, probably most famous for writing The Trouble with Tribbles, the most hilarious episode of the original series. Um, He and I have already been talking for an hour because we've been talking about Dorothy Fontana. So this episode will be kind of a mini episode because um, I've taken enough of David's time and I don't want to go uh, through his whole career. But what I want to do is talk to you, David, about this book that you put out last year that was one of my favorite reads last year, Hella. You're one of the youngest people to have written for Star Trek, so you're an elder statesman of science fiction. So it's really awesome that you're still um, writing. Alive. <laughs> well, still alive. That you're still, still writing <laughs> science fiction that's as vital and as important as it is. Um, I really, really loved Hella. Um Give people a thumbnail of, of what that novel is. Well, I, I, let me give you, I'll give you the backstory. There was a wonderful show um, called Terra Nova. Brandon Braga produced it. And uh, it was about people going back in time to the uh, setting up a colony in the time of dinosaurs. And uh, I was fascinated with the concept. And, you know, and, uh, of course, I want to see more dinosaurs. But uh, they didn't go everywhere where I wanted to go. I wanted to explore what happens with human beings living in that ecology. And I started thinking about world building. And I have a trilogy with uh, the jumping off the planet, bouncing off the moon, leaping to the stars trilogy. And they end up on a colony ship. The family ends up on a colony ship to a planet that has dinosaurs or the equivalent of dinosaurs. So I started writing um, Hella. Uh, from the point of view of another young man, it was going to be another, uh, to evoke the flavor of the Heinlein juveniles that I grew up with in the 50s and 60s. And and I realized two chapters in, uh, I'm just doing so much world building, who would be disinterested? And I realized the narrator of this is neurodivergent. I didn't say he's autistic or has Asperger's. He's just neurodivergent. And they put a chip in his head. He could even have Down syndrome. I I never made that clear in the story. But once I realized that, he was enthusiastic about the world building. So I got to spend a lot of the novel enjoying his enthusiasm about all the things he was discovering about this colony planet with the uh, with these large, gigantic animals that were the equivalent of dinosaurs. And the one thing I, I lifted from uh, Terra Nova was they had this beautiful fence around the, the uh, colony and I, I said, you know, that works. You use the trees and you build this fence and the dinosaurs will, you know. And so I did that. I put that around uh, uh, Summerland. That was the name of their station. And uh, so, but then I got into the politics of what, how you, what happens with a colony? How do you make it self-sufficient on a strange new world when you really have to protect yourself against infection of strange new diseases and vice versa? And and but you want to explore, you want to find out. And I most of the and I but I also had to write a real story there, too. So, um, well, and that's one of the things that's great about Hella is that it's hard science fiction um, in a way that a lot of people don't write these days, whereas 
And, you know, part of the mission statement of the book is on page 209 when um, you have two characters talking about watching old but modern to us science fiction. And you have a character saying, um, talking about how lazy, there, there, there's no worlds like that. There's just lazy science fiction writers. There's no Earth-like planets. There's only lazy writers. Right. I had that realization a long time ago. It's like on Star Trek, we'd always end up with an Earth-like planet. And, uh, you know, and a lot of other shows, it, it always looks like Vancouver or Vasquez Rocks, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, of course, now with CGI and some of the new technologies, you can visit strange new worlds that are ice or desert or whatever. But again, a planet has an ecology that's different at the poles than it is at the equator. Yeah. And, you, and, and I developed, this is my own mind, I don't know who else does it, um, I start. What co what color is the star? How big is it? Where's the Goldilocks zone? Um, is the planet tilted on its axis? How much is it tilted on its axis? Uh, what kind? Of, how big is the planet? How small is the planet? What kind of atmosphere does it have? Uh, what's the percentage of water? Is there clean water? Or is water scarce? Uh, but if water is scarce, you're not going to have enough oxygen because you need enough plants to turn. Uh, to create turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, and, and you start adding all these things up and and uh, you need a particular set of circumstances to have dinosaurs you need uh an oxygen rich atmosphere i i cheated a little bit and made the gravity 10 percent less so that the animals could not over not only have a lot of oxygen available but that they could be walking mountains and uh, which was in you know it's like yeah that'll be fun but in order to do that i had to think about the star is this way, the planet is here, it's tilted this way, it's shaped like this, it's, it, you know, before I could even write this, it, it's, uh, and I spent, I don't know, two, three pages on that, simply because I had to believe in it before I could write it. Um, I'm that way with my science right. fiction, I have to believe it before I can write it. If I'm writing fantasy, I just need a set of rules that I can't break for a fantasy. Uh, even fantasy has its logic. Right. But well, science fiction, you have to work with the science as you know it. And I think the problem why science fiction has become a lot harder to write is there's a lot more science. We know we have a half century of discoveries about uh, dinosaurs were hot blooded, uh, we, how the, the body works, how animals work, how evolution works, how stars work, how gravity works. We have an incredible amount of, you know, and, and I used to re spend a hundred bucks a month just reading the science magazines. And, and now on the internet, the stuff just pours into, uh, you know, pours, it's an avalanche of new information. And, and my notes on what I want to do is like, oh, crap, if I want to write about a disease or want to write about evolution, whatever's happening in the book, any book that has science in it, the science is overwhelming. Not a lot of writers can keep up with that. I can't, and I'm supposed to be good at it. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think very few um, writers these days take doing hard science fiction very seriously. I think I'm reading... Um, uh, Blind Sight by uh, Peter Watts right now, and it's one of the few where where um, he's really taking the, a lot of the science seriously. And it's interesting because Hella is, you know, one that I feel like you definitely did that, and I really appreciated um, also the the neurodivergent main character because I think um, I, I think that's something that we've been long overdue to have in science fiction. As somebody who works with kids with autism on a daily basis, that's my day job right now. 
is working with kids. I have not written. I have not written a straight white male character in at least twenty years. Um, that was science fiction in the fifties, sixties, seventies. Straight white male characters, and I'm like, okay, yeah. But one day it hit me: not everybody is straight, not everybody's white, not everybody is male, not everybody thinks the same way. But everybody had been all the writers were the the field was dominated by a certain mindset. It was the post World War II vet who had come home. And that was the attitude, um, and God bless them all. But um, there was it was kind of like the field was wearing blinders, and um, and I give credit to Joanna Russ, Annie McCaffrey, uh, Zena Henderson, Lee Brackett, uh, all of the women writers, uh, 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 Kate Wilhelm, all the women writers who were coming at science fiction from a whole other direction, and and I read everything at the time. I read everything and. But coming from that direction, I got the, finally got the idea. You know, science fiction isn't all Heinlein juveniles. It isn't all Asimov and Clark and Heinlein. There's a little bit of Sturgeon there, but there's a lot of other stuff that we haven't been paying attention to. A lot of other ways of looking at things. There's like hey, Le Guin turned the whole field upside down with the left hand of darkness. Suddenly realized we can, what science fiction is really about is about the human condition that the way human beings are is not necessarily the way we really are or the way we have to be. And once I started looking at my stories that way, I realized I'm exploring humanity. I'm not exploring the universe as much as I'm exploring humanity. And that's when I really became uh, a better writer because well, people are the real adventure. Yeah, because the LGBTQ issues in Hella are they're there, but they're almost more they're massaged into the story in a way where they're not hitting you over the head. And one of the things is, is that, I mean, we do know that, um, you know, a few of, you know, there's been out science fiction writers for a long time. So the science fiction community has been open-minded about it, but for publishing, um, you know, that was a little bit of a different story for a long time. But one of the things that I really liked about, um, you know, Hella is that the way you approached it is is that gender is much more of a thing that you kind of choose you choose and it's kind of a fluid thing and you know it's less of a it's issue. what you discover yeah you discover yeah. who you are I, I there's I think there's over seven billion genders on this planet and too many of us are thinking in terms of only two right but my experience is everybody approaches sexuality different. Um, they approach identity. Everybody's unique with a unique identity. And um, we need to respect the fact that we are, yeah, I forget who said it, said we're all walking each other home in the dark. Um, that we're all damaged. Um, you cannot, you cannot survive on this planet without taking wounds, without being assaulted by circumstances. Um, we are in the rock tumbler of life, or we're sliding down the cheese grater of life, whatever metaphor you want. Sometimes it's a lot worse than that. Um, and if I ever find the really good metaphor, I will use it. But um, we all end up damaged. We've lost somebody we love. We've been assaulted. Uh, Two-thirds of the women uh, in this country have been raped or abused. That's pretty horrifying. Um right. And 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 so we're all we're all suffering from one degree or other post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Um, and only those who have been lived totally protected from the universe are insane and truly insane because they've never learned to deal with the roughness of life. Well, um, one of the things that I like too is you have this on page 49, there's a part where they say mom's old fashioned about babies. Maybe it's just because she was born male, but changed so she could experience her own pregnancy with Jamie and then with me. I asked her why she never changed back. And she said she was having more fun this way. She said, I should make up my own mind. So I like this idea that, you know, that people in this future are just kind of experimenting with who they want to be and what experiences they want to live. And it's a it's a subtle part of the book. It's not like an open. It was almost a throwaway. I, did, I wrote it and said, OK, and, and went on. I'm like, I, I need a little background. Here's some background. And, and I wasn't thinking much about it at the time. It was just, uh, you know, John Varley used to do that. It still does. But he did it in his uh, Nine World series of books, the Ophiuchi Hotline, whatever. He, he had people changing bodies, changing sexes. Uh, Tanith Lee did it in The Silver Metal Lover, had people changing their bodies. And uh, But if you go all the way back to The Man Who Folded Himself, and I, I discovered a few months ago a review of it that was written, I don't know, about five years ago, whenever. And the uh, the young woman writing, the I think she was a young woman, maybe not. But uh, she said the book ignored the cultural defaults at the time. That if you were going to have a gay character, you had to condemn homosexuality. And in The Man Who Folded Himself, I ignored that. And simply had the, you know, here's, two, here's the hero falling in love with himself, another version of himself. And, you know, and they get it on, they have a good time. And then, when, and then you know, it's part of the story and move on. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no cultural uh, attitude added to that, which was a breakthrough in science fiction. I didn't realize it was a breakthrough in science fiction until someone pointed it out to me. But um, we reached a point in science fiction where uh, you could have uh, same-sex relationships. Joanna Russ did it in uh, When It Changed and the female man, and John Varley did it, it to some extent in his Nine Worlds books. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, Ursula K. Le Guin explored human sexuality to a great degree in Left-Handed Darkness. And so that inspired me to attempt something different in uh, Moonstar Odyssey, where uh, people choose their sex at puberty. They choose their gender at puberty. And what happens if you feel you've chosen wrong? And so... Um, I think science fiction is at its strongest when we explore the human condition, because that speaks to uh, that speaks to those who are alone and wondering, is, am I the only one who feels this way? And I received letters from young men um, saying that when they read The Man Who Folded Himself, they realized they were no longer alone in the world and that they didn't have to commit suicide. I thought, oh, wow, I did not realize this book had that kind of impact. So um, to me, science fiction has to be about uh, breaking the boundaries. Uh, right. The status quo is the enemy. Our job, the real job of the science fiction writer is to look what's on the other side of the boundary. Well, and one of the things I like about this book, and um, uh, a friend and mentor of mine, John Shirley, just recently wrote a book that was very clearly influenced by the Jack Vance Dying Earth novels. And he's like kind of trying to update those a little bit. 
and trying to kind of bring like a modern spin to those. And, and I remember when we were, when he and I talked about Hella, I said, Oh, well, I kind of think David Gerald's doing the same thing with the, with the Heinlein um, colony books. And uh, you know, and, and, but I didn't really see anywhere where you had actually said that. So it's kind of cool that um, that is basically what I, I kind of got the feeling you were trying to do. I know you talked about. I, I wanted to create, thing. I wanted to evoke the flavor of the Heinlein juveniles. I'm not trying to imitate Heinlein because uh, I can do things that Heinlein couldn't. He, you know, he had an editor named Alice Doglish who would, you know, red pencil when he got, and, and, and they finally published the original books. Ace, I think published, you can find, the, his unedited version of Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers and Red Planets and a couple others. And you can see, and and I don't think there's a lot of difference, but in Red Planet, there were some uh, um, uh, comments about gun ownership that got cut from the juvenile, uh, but they're there in the reprinted version. I don't think they add anything to the story. I don't think they detract from the story, they're, but it's interesting to see what Heinlein really intended. But in those days, you know, the editors were thinking of what can I sell and what's going to piss off the readers and, you know, where are we going to, uh, you know, I've got to get into the bookstores and I got to sell to the schools and the libraries. And the editors were very conscious of that. Nowadays, there's a lot more freedom. You go on, on uh, Amazon, you start reading what people are writing and, mm -hmm. and there's no, whatever boundaries once existed, they're gone. Right. So well, that's, that's one of the things that I think is great that we get, um you know elder states persons writers in the field who uh you know have been doing it for a long time and know what they're doing and are putting like these great unique spins on on, on these classic works and so it's one of the things that that i really enjoyed about hella now in the, the second half we get kind of murder and conflict and those kinds of things um but and the only thing that I worried about a little bit in reading the book was for me, it worked just fine because I love world building and I love seeing the construction of these worlds. So I was completely invested in Hella from page one, but I worried that some readers, maybe those things were taking too long to develop. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, for you, I, obviously you're very driven by by those world building aspects did you ever think about moving those those things let me say it this way i write the books for me and let other people pay for the privilege of reading over my shoulder <laughs> now the amazon right. reviews have been very fun one person gave the book a bad review because he said it's too woke i suppose that was because he couldn't spell empathy i don't know uh, you know, too woke. If you say that like it's a bad thing. Right. Um, and somebody else complained about the book because it too, took too long to get where it was going. It's like, there's all this world building. Where's the story? It says, the world building is the story. I'm sneaking right. up on it. And in fact, it opens up with uh, Jamie has had his leg broken by Marley Layton. Um, uh, Kyle has to take Jamie's place on the, the ride around, uh, where they're, and, and he gets to see the dinosaurs, which are, that's a large part of the, uh, yes, there's dinosaurs on this planet. Then I, and, and then in the middle of that, then they find out that the cascade the, uh, is arriving. The colony ship is arriving. And that's a lot to have happen in the first three chapters. 
Right. And and plus there's some characterization chapters, some good, but you know, a lot of the the modern audience of uh, the non-readers, they wanted to see the 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 buildings blowing up before the titles. They want to see the monster come ashore before the titles. They want to, and this goes back to James Bond. They want to see an action sequence before we get to the titles. It's like, no, I don't write like that. I write a story where, you know, this is about a kid growing up and accepting responsibility. One of the complaints was, but we never see a dinosaur fight. We never see the dinosaurs never threaten the colony. I said, no, they don't because the colony has taken appropriate precautions to protect, protect themselves from the dinosaurs. And the big action sequence is watching uh, right outside the fence one of the the predators bringing down a uh, whitefoot or lightfoot whitefoot and and that was it and it's like okay you got your dinosaurs and i'm going to tell the rest of the story which is about the colony mm. you got your and now and it's also i don't know what else to do with the dinosaurs then um right. they are scenery but they're great scenery and the same thing with land of the lost we had dinosaurs in land of the lost but we had to be very careful how we could use them because we couldn't afford to do a lot of animation so, uh, of course, when you're writing a book, you can do anything you want. But uh, Well, that's one of the things I love about Hella is that Hella has this feel of it's both modern and old school at the same time. Thank you. That's, that's one of the things that I really love about it is, um, is how it combines those two things. And in, uh, I think in an earlier age, before the science fiction genre evolved into what it is now, I think it had been published in the 70s, and probably would have gotten a Hugo nomination. But now, you know, it used to be there were only 90 people writing science fiction. Now there's 9,000 or 90,000. I don't know. So you kind of get lost in the crowd. And um, I'm not in, all that interested in self-promotion. It's hard work, and I'd rather be writing. Right. So, um, well, yeah, Hugo's is a lot of... A lot I, of I have a Hugo. I don't need a second one. I, I used to joke... Um, I'm, you know, I, I used to joke, I, I'd like a second Hugo, but I'm not going to adopt any more kids either. Right. No, I, you know, because I got my Hugo for the Martian child, which, and I had people accuse me as, you only got it because you adopted a kid, not because the story's any good. Said, yeah, thank you, but I still got the Hugo. Right. Well, uh, I, you know, there, there were, there's been all kinds of weird stuff about the Hugo. I always look at the fact that, you know, I love Clifford Samak, and I think he was super deserving of, the Hugo for Waystation, but it is super weird that he beat out Vonnegut, Cat's Cradle. You know, as much as I love Waystation. No, Vonnegut did not get win and never won Hugo. And that's one of the reasons why he would never allow his work to be categorized as science fiction. It was, uh, I believe, 1952. And Mark Clifton's friends uh, got together to um, vote as a block and voted um, they'd rather be right which I think is a much more ambitious book. I'm not sure it's a great book. It was the first time anybody, got, nobody knew what the Hugos were going to become. And uh, Vonnegut was so pissed off that that uh, player piano did not win that he walked away from, you can't call my book science fiction. I don't do science fiction, blah, blah, blah. Sirens of Titan, Cat's Cradle, um, what else? Player piano and a couple others. Yeah, but we can't call it science fiction. Okay, right. we won't call it Slaughterhouse-Five. We won't call it science fiction, all right? And he had a great career. I admired him. He did a lot of good books. He did some that was like, are you just coasting? But, you know, he was Vonnegut. And he he had a voice. He had something to say. Um, I don't think Player Piano was all that strong a book myself. I read it and said, is this all? Yeah. Um, 
So, but um, but cats a lot of people a lot of people take the awards way too seriously. Um, I did for a while, and then I realized, why am I doing this? I'm it's a, like it's getting in the way of the writing. So yeah, and, that and, was a long time ago, right? And um, uh, and anyone that would question your Hugo for Martian Child, I mean that uh, this, I mean the story, the backstory for it is part of one of the things that makes it charming, you know. So uh, there, there's there's there should be nothing wrong with that. Now, I would be remiss if I did not ask about, um, I have a, a close buddy, uh, Issa Diaw, who's on, we do uh, every season of Star Trek, we do, um, we review the latest season, and he's one of my regular guests on the podcast, and um, his favorite book series of all time is your, um, now I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, the Chator books. Sure. Uh, it just, it's, there's a click in there, but you know, it's like. Yeah, and he would just rake me over the coals if I didn't ask you if there was plans to write another book in that series. Well, if I didn't have a grandson to watch over, or I didn't have the challenges of moving into a new computer, if I didn't have the this over here, and if I didn't have the that, and if we didn't have to start packing so we can move, because we want to move in a year and a half, I would have time to write the last three chapters of book five. Book six is half written, too. So I just need I just need a couple months writing time. Um, that close book five will be a nest for nightmares. Book five will be a nest for nightmares. Book six will be a method for madness. Excellent. Well, you know, he told he Isa told me like because he's got like a bunch of kids that he said he he doesn't he can't just have time to read anymore. And he said that that's the series that he would drop everything and read the next books no matter what happened. Like, I'm the same uh, way. I'm the same way. I have a stack of books I really want to get to. By the end of the day, it's like, I'm just lucky, to, you know, to have a cup of coffee. And, you know, my son says uh, uh, we go out in the patio in the evening to both de depress, de depress, to detox, uh, decompress at the end of the day. And we just sit and talk. Last night, we we were laughing for an hour and a half last night. Um and I'm not giving that up. I'm not, you know, I could sit in the desk and, and write, but I'd rather spend time laughing with my kid, chasing the grandkid around the house, running errands with my granddaughter. She's just a granddaughter with my uh, daughter-in-law. I'll have a granddaughter soon enough. Um, you know, uh, spending time with, I have said this more than once, my family's more important than my career. And I have had other writers go, oh, you don't, oh, please, no, 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 please don't deprive us of the next book. I said, you've got plenty books. You've got plenty books. <laughs> like my family, you know, spending time with my family is got to be my single priority, doing things for them. You know, it's like, I want them to have a great life. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, you know, that is, I have this conversation with my son. He says, dad, this 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 and this you know about things that is, i said forget the past we're going to focus on the future and this is what i want to create and i want you guys to have a great life well yeah. it's cool that you're so close to finishing those books you'll get them done i think yeah i will yeah I will. very very soon so i think that's something that everybody can look forward one to. one thing i will say is like when i was in my 20s you know i could sit and type for eight nine hours and do 30 or 40 pages you know thousands and thousands of words uh, I could do, you know, working on Star Trek Next Generation, I could work 12 hours and do memos and scripts and whatever. Now, it's like, I, I have a list. 
you know, it's like, and I will do check things off the list as much as I can. And when I reach a certain point where there's no more strength, I go and take a nap. And then I come back and I say, do I want to do anything else today? <laughs> can I do, you know, can I, but, you know, I try to solve one problem a day. If I solve one problem a day, I have made, that's it. That's all I need to do. More than that is gravy. Well, speaking yeah. of which, I'm going to get us back to our families um, here real soon. Um, I really appreciate the time, especially talking about uh, Dorothy Fontana on the on the record, um, you know, uh, a, a few of your quotes are going to end up in that article, but, um, you know, it's really a joy and a pleasure to talk to you about Dorothy Fontana and the um, respect that I think both of us have for her role in science fiction. And, uh, but I also want to say that uh, your role, sir, um, in, in science fiction, um, this, this book right here that I, the, the, the world of Star Trek, which um, right before uh, Star Trek three came out, the edition that where you added all the stuff on that. Um, it was one of the first times that I ever like really had a, a vision into that. These were real human beings making, making um, this. I, I, I admired all those people. I wish I'd had time to do more in that book. Yeah, but it was all it had to rush because I had a deadline, but um, it was so much fun revisiting the Star Trek and, and writing about nobody had ever written a book about the production of a TV series before, so it was groundbreaking. I did not realize the impact I was having. I was just writing about something I loved, and I realized the impact it had in the industry. Mm. And I will tell you, share, share this with you. I've had many, many people come up. Oh, your book got me in, in, interested in becoming a television producer. A lot of producers I say, great, why don't you call me next time you need to hire a writer? <laughs> it's like, don't tell me, how, you know, that I had such influence. I, like when I edited Land of the Lost, I brought in all of the writers I admired who were available to me. You know, look at the writers, Walter Koenig and, and Norman Spinrad and Dorothy Fontana and Ben Bova and... Uh, um, there were more Ted Sturgeon and so on. And it's just an incredible uh, writing staff. Uh, and each one did a great episode. I don't think we did a bad episode that first year. Um, one of my favorite interviews, you, you'll find this story amusing. Well, first of all, I've, I've read all of uh, Norman's notes for his two episodes, the one he wrote and the one he didn't write. And one of my favorite things I ever saw in one of the memos was the fact that Bob Justman told Norman Spinrad, hey, we only have two tricorders. So, uh, you know, stop writing that the, the landing party has eight tricorders, which was hilarious to me. But um, the funniest interview that I've, I've done on either podcast, when for Dickheads, we interviewed Norman a couple of years ago, and we had a hell of a time getting him on the line and getting the technology to work. And the very first question, I asked him how he got into science fiction, and he just, he just like looked at the camera and was like, that's a stupid question next and i well, was like norman is norman is the quintessential grumpy old man he was a grumpy old man the day he was born i think <laughs> right i've known norman i've known norman uh, since i met him uh, at paul's uh uh desilu you know first uh -huh. Star Trek, and uh, i admire him i think he's a great writer he has done some incredible work he's uh, one of my favorites from his 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 rage at the universe <laughs> Well, what's funny is, is if you listen to the interview, he, once he realizes that I actually knew his work as well as Phil's, then he, he kind of relaxed. Cause I think he just assumed I was just going to ask him a hundred Philip K. Dick questions. 
Um, but, you know, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, the Iron Dream and, and uh, Men in the Jungle. And, uh, you know, I, I know his work as well as anybody. I think Journal of the Plague Years is one of the most underrated uh, science fiction works. Uh, you know, his, like um, story in um, there are two stories of his I admire amazingly. One is the Carcinoma Angels and the other is the Weed of Time. And I think the Weed of Time is the most amazing of all of the work he's done. Hmm. Um, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Um, but, you know, I have such respect for him and, um, you know, and, and uh, everything that he's done. Um, and I actually I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of lost voices that we try to recover on dickheads like the Barry Maltzbergs and the, you know, we interviewed Barry, too. That was that was pretty classic. Barry, uh, let me share a Barry story with you. Now, I admire Barry a lot. He is absolutely He's a very interesting man. Mm-hmm. And he was working at Random House. And my agent sold. I had been working on, I'd been house sitting for Donald Westlake, and I had been working on the war against the tour. And I uh, got up to channel uh, chapter 13 or 14. My agent called and said, I just sold the uh, man who folded himself to Random House, which I had written up to a certain point, And then I put aside because I didn't know where, how, where to go next. And my agent took those pages over to Random House and sold the novel. So I put the war against the tour aside, that was a matter for men, and went back to work on the man who folded himself. And it was a hard book to write. I could only do three pages a day because I was, I don't know what comes next. And I go to bed and I wake up in the morning and say, oh, I could do this. Three pages a day, maybe. And it's like, how, where's the next step? What's the next weird thing? What's, you know, I finally finished the book. And turned it into Random House. Lee Wright was the editor. Now, Lee Wright was one of the great editors of the 30s and 40s. So, like, what a privilege. She reads the book. She turns, she says to Barry Malsberg, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with it. Barry Malsberg was working as her assistant or something over at, uh, and he reads the book and hands it back to her and says, this is a masterpiece, a tour de force, publish it immediately. Awesome. She would have re- she would have rejected it, not knowing how to because she didn't know science fiction. And um, but Barry did. And I have been a lifelong admirer and grateful to Barry from day one. I sent him. In fact, just a few months ago, I sent him a big box of books. My more we had gotten into a conversation about something. So I sent him a big box of my latest stuff and said, I think I'm finally learning a little bit about this writing uh, gig. And um uh, he was, he, you know, he, he knows how grateful I am to him because if it hadn't been for him, Man Who Fold Himself might never have been public. Well, Betty Ballantyne would have picked it up, but. Um, yeah, well, but still, he played a role. That's very cool. My first hardcover was my first hardcover, and it was really, it was, uh, it was an impressive debut. Well, one of my many debuts. <laughs> he told one of our favorite eyewitness stories on the Dickheads podcast where he was in the room when uh, Don Wilhelm found out that Man in the High Castle had been nominated for the Hugo after he rejected it and how uh, upset Don Wilhelm was and was screaming it wasn't science fiction and um, and uh, which is a story that you know has lived on in infamy and the fact that he was there to, to witness it was very very funny to us so I love I love hearing these old stories Harlan used to tell the story that he was in the room when L. Ron Hubbard said, the only way to get rich anymore is to start a religion. <laughs> like, <Right>. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it was Ellison that wasn't it? That was, yeah. No, that's amazing. I used, to, I used to spend a lot of time with Harlan. Um, 
as one of the people who refused to uh, lose. I, I, let me put it this way. Harlan burned through a lot of friends. He, he was very, um, he, his flame burned very brightly and it was very hard to keep up. I'd go up to Ellis in Wonderland and hang out with him simply for the private performance of Harlan Ellison. Um, he had his quirks, he had his flaws, but when he, but he had passion and ambition and commitment. And, and it was kind of like, I'm gonna get as close to this flame as I can just to get warm because I have to get back to my own machine. And uh, I, I hope I can have even a spark of what Harlan uh, was. Um, but it, let me say this. Uh, there are so many writers I admire, each for their the ability, Heinlein, uh, Sturgeon, Clark, uh, Ellison, Le Guin, uh, Annie McCaffrey, uh, Zena Henderson, uh, Lee Brackett, so many landmarks, giants in the field. And one of the things I realized is that I will never be any of them. But then again, on the other hand, they won't be David Gerald because I have to have my own unique voice. And I think and and I'm working on a, a collection that addresses this subject. The Martian Child is my unique voice. That's the a pure David Gerald uh, storytelling. And uh, um, but it took me I don't know twenty thirty years to get to that point where I could where I stopped trying to be someone else and decided to just let loose and be the writer I was. Uh, and I think that's the journey every writer is. You, you end up admiring certain writers and certain kinds of storytelling, and you you want to do that thing. But eventually, you have to develop your own voice you, and be your own writer. And uh, the great writers in our field are the ones who have gotten to the point where they are developed. They have created it or realized or achieved their own voice. Well, and part of one of the reasons why I'm writing the article about Dorothy and one of the reasons why we do the two, I do the two podcasts that I do is to keep the history alive so we can remember these voices, remember these people for the important role that they had in science fiction. And, and so it's really important for, for me to get a chance to talk to the people who are around them and remember them. And um, of course, you know, creating uh, the unique work that you do. Um, you know, like I said, I, I really respect the man who folded himself. It's one that I've been due for a reread. Um, uh, it's just a, a really fantastic uh, work. I think one of the undisputed classics of science fiction. And um, I really mm -hmm. loved Hella. I was really excited uh, to see you back in the game last year. Um, and really looking forward to what you've got coming out. David, thank you for your time. Uh, you gave me a ton of time tonight. Um, and I really appreciate it. I'm going to do everything I can to pay respect to your friend and Dorothy Fontana and, and the work that she did and the impact that she had. And um, I appreciate um, everything that you're doing for the genre to keep everything alive. Um, is there anything else you wanna tell my listeners before we go? Please buy my books. <laughs> <laughs> Please buy my books. I, you know, it's like, yeah, I write for myself. You pay for the privilege of reading over my shoulder, but really the job is to be fun, useful, and entertaining. And uh, um, I hope you enjoy, you know, if you like my books, please. All right. Well, that that's a good way to end. And um, thanks, folks, for listening. And um, I'm not sure what's going to be the next episode, uh, but uh, David, it was great having you on the show. Thank you.